Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with David Garofalo, who's one of the titans of the precious metals industry. Currently, he presides over Gold Royalty Corp as their chairman and CEO. He's taken on this role with over 30 years of experience in building and leading mining companies. As an example, his previous role was president and CEO of Gold Corp, where he navigated the company into a combined $10 billion deal with Newmont. David's background is as an accountant, and you can hear this in his focus on and attention to detail when it comes to financials. For someone leading a royalty company, this is exactly what you want. In our discussion, we go down memory lane, but also get into how he's approaching royalties, what companies should know about approaching them for capital, as well as his thoughts on how to do M&A right. David's track record is remarkable, so it's great to get these insights. And before we get started, please note that the information contained in this interview is not financial advice, but for entertainment purposes. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of this information. I recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of an accredited investment advisor. Now, enjoy the show. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Corey. Yes, I'm looking forward to our conversation. You've got a remarkable career in the resource industry, which I've got a, a just a huge respect for, both what you've been able to do and the industry. It's just fascinating. But I think the best place for us to start is with a background on yourself so we can frame our conversation. So I'll hand it over to you. Well, my current employee is Chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Corp, but it's a long path to get to that. I founded that company along with Amir and Nanny about two and a half years ago. But my most recent gig was a CEO of Gold Corp. And I led the merger with Newmont, which was the largest merger in gold mining history, a $32 billion company that's since grown from that, but created the world's biggest gold company by market cap and production. Started my career as, as a chartered accountant with Deloitte's back in the 1980s. Started in a very junior accounting position with a base metal producer called Inmet Mining and rose through the ranks there over eight years to treasurer. And then um, in 1998, Ignigo Eagle was looking for a CFO and I joined them just as Sean Boyd, who's the executive chairman there to this day, took over as CEO. And uh, he and I along with Eve Shirkus, who was the chief operating officer, grew the company from a $200 million market cap company to $10 billion by the time I left in 2010. It's since eclipsed that dramatically through a series of mergers. And I think it's $30 billion market cap today. But I went on to run Hud Bay Minerals for six years and built three mines there. And all told, over 33 years in the business, I've been involved in the construction of 15 mines and operated countless more. And really worked my way through the financial side of the business, but got involved in mind building teams uh, from a commercial standpoint, but 
learned a lot of the business from the ground up doing that. So I've been very, very fortunate in that regard. An hour is not going to be enough for us to have this conversation. That's a huge career, man. Good for you. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And now the royalty yeah. business is another dimension, and I'm really enjoying that. And I think I'm in the right company at the right point in the cycle, which I'm sure we'll discuss over the course of the interview. Let's get into that. And royalty companies are you know, a really interesting form of financing. And I think both for investors and for mining companies or, or resource companies who need that capital. Can you give us a background both on your company and the business model there so we can start to, to pull some questions from that? Business model is not that complicated. We're effectively, and our royalty peers are the same, effectively a financial institution, a bank that's specifically focused on providing capital to developers, explorers, operators to build, operate, expand their minds, explore them and doing it much more cost effectively than they can do it themselves. And it's an arbitrage game. And I'll give you a very tangible example how royalties benefited me as a mine builder. When I was running Hud Bay Minerals, we were looking to build the Constancia Copper Mine in Peru. And that was a $1.7 billion project, US. And it was actually larger than our market cap at the time. So it was quite an audacious undertaking, large open pit mine that you know, really didn't play to our core competencies as an underground operator in northern Manitoba, but we felt a necessary diversification strategy. We had about a billion dollars on the balance sheet, so we still had a financial hole we needed to fill, and we were looking to do some debt capital markets bond raising in the U.S., but we thought an important gap to fill would be through streaming. And 95% of the metal from Constantia was copper, but there was 5% that was precious metals. And we thought, well, the market's not really paying us for those precious metals. So why don't we stream them off and that'll give us some upfront capital we can put towards the construction of the mine. And we called Franco Nevada. We called Wheaton Precious Metals. We called up, effectively, those were the two competitors and Royal Gold as well, I think at the time, and asked them what they would bid on that, that stream. And Randy Smallwood at Wheaton, who's still to this day a very close friend of mine, delivered a $750 million check to me towards the construction of that project. And they enjoy the stream from that to this day. And this is how the arbitrage worked. Randy's equity was trading at two times net asset value. HUD Bay's equity was trading at 0.5 times net asset value. Uh, so we're significantly discounted relative to the royalty players. Base metal companies rarely trade above one times NEV and we were discounted significantly. It was kind of a copper bear market at the time. So Randy paid me one times net asset value for the stream. He got that re-rated on his balance sheet at two times in the market. And so he benefited. I benefited because I got much lower cost of capital than I could otherwise raise through equity. And the mine got built. And to this day, Constancia is one of the lowest cost, largest scale copper mines in Latin America. And it's the cornerstone of HUD Bay. And we wouldn't have been able to build it with a stream and without that arbitrage that was embedded in, in the royalty and streaming business. And the reason I've switched over to royalty and streaming at this stage in my career is I'm a huge bull on gold. I think gold's going to have a strong run. But unfortunately, we're in what I think is going to be an entrenched inflationary cycle. And mining companies aren't immune from that. I wouldn't want to be building and operating mines today. It's tough, tough environment. Costs are very fluid. They're getting scaled up dramatically. It's hard to put a pin in your capital cost budgets, your operating cost budgets. There's been um, continuous disappointments in the market from the producers in that regard. And I think that's going to be a recurring theme going forward. And I want leverage the gold price, but I want to be insulated from cost inflation. And what royalty companies offer you is top line exposure, you know, just a percentage of the revenue. 
And that's why I built a royalty and streaming company. And uh, the reason I've been consolidating so aggressively is there isn't a mid-tier royalty streaming company in the space right now. There's the big guys, and then there's a bunch of little guys. If we could capture that missing middle, which is big enough to matter to institutional investors, but small enough to grow, then I think we'll get the best multiple in the space. And that'll drive down our costs and capital and, and make us competitive. Very interesting. So you founded this with Amir and Danny two years ago. And what was the thought process before doing that? Did you anticipate the inflation? You know, what did you go through? Because you left, well, it was the, the previous to that was the merger with Newmont, if I'm not mistaken, in your career. So having moved on from that, I can see you're looking for opportunities. But what was the thought process bringing you in and saying, you know what, the market needs this? Yeah, look, what I saw was a highly fragmented space in the royalty sector. And what I also saw is an entrenched inflationary cycle. It, in, in headline inflation numbers hadn't really taken off yet in 2019 when Amir yeah. and I were trying to conceive of this. But I That's was, when it was still transitory, right? Yeah. I had been saying this for years. I said, look, look at all the money printing, you know, and look at how low interest rates have been for a prolonged period of time here. This is going to have to result in significant inflation. I didn't want to be caught in the middle of that building mines again. Uh, I built enough mines to know that even in the best of times, it's a capital intensive, technically risky undertaking. Doing that while you're facing the headwinds of inflation is very, very difficult. And, you know, I would say that my meeting with Amir in 2019, maybe six months after we completed the, the Goldcorp Newmont merger, and I was trying to figure out what I would do at this stage in my career was fortuitous. You know, we we met over a, a Christmas luncheon and he had just completed the IPO of Uranium Royalty Corp. And so he was quite excited about that. So he was a big proponent of royalties. And he then he told me about his vehicle, Gold Mining Inc. And Gold Mining Inc. It was a collection, is a collection of about a dozen development stage gold assets in the Americas with 32 million ounces of gold equivalent, 4301 resource on them. And Amir, to his credit, and he's a consummate value investor, bought these at the bottom of the cycle. He bought them over the last decade, paid about 10 cents on the dollar for them. You know, the, these were all in public vehicles before. I think the collective market cap of those vehicles was about $700 million. He paid 70 for those dozen assets. And he put them on the shelf and he said, this is not the right time to put any money into them. Gold was near a thousand. And he says, I'll just wait up the cycle. And when it does, and I'll figure out what I'm going to do with this to, to daylight value. And so late 2019, gold was starting to accelerate again, and he was looking for ways to daylight value. And one of the thoughts that we came to together was, well, why don't we write some royalties on these properties, create a separate royalty vehicle, that'll give gold mining a source of capital, which they can then invest back in the assets, start exploring again, start to de-risk the assets through studies, PEAs, PFSs, feasibility studies, but in order to do that, we needed to equip the management team at Gold Mining to undertake those, those initiatives. And so one of the people we brought along uh, with me from Gold Corp was a guy called Alistair Stell. And Alistair was a senior operations manager at a porcupine complex in Ontario, Gold Corp. And then he went to build Cerro Negro in Argentina for us, which to this day, I think is Argentina's biggest producing gold mine. And then he was in the corporate development group. And he's a geo by training. So I knew technically sound guy with great operating mine development experience. That's what gold mining needed to de-risk and re-rate those assets through putting work in the ground in them. And that's what he's done tremendously since he came on board. 
And that's value additive to the royalties. And we took those royalties on those dozen development stage assets, IPO Gold Royalty Corp in March of 2021, looking to raise about 30 million US. The order book was 140 million. So we tripled the size of the IPO to 90. And we got a post money valuation of 200 million US. And as I said, I saw a highly fragmented universe of small cap royalty players and they hadn't been talking to each other. And I just went about talking to the CEOs and saying, which one of you want to you know, join us in a much bigger vehicle that will hopefully get a re-rate, diversify our portfolio, give us better access to capital. And we did a deal with Ely Gold, then Golden Valley and Abitibi royalties. And we went from 18 royalties at our IPO to 215 today, largely as a result of that M&A. And today, as a result of that, we have eight cash flowing royalties. We have 15 in construction. And we have a significant amount of optionality and 180 other royalties from early stage exploration right through to feasibility. So that gives us a lot of organic growth and underpins the highest compounded annual growth rate and revenue in the entire royalty space is 60% per year. So 10 months after IPO, having achieved the, that M&A and getting scale and getting cash flow, we introduced a dividend. We pay a 1.6% yield. And given the revenue growth we have and the fact that our G&A costs are going to be flat, you know, we have eight employees that can run a business 10 times the size with the same eight employees. You know, we have high potential to increase that dividend over time. So very, very excited about what our vehicle has, has achieved in a very short period of time. There's no doubt that you've, you know, just put a rocket ship together here and hearing those figures and, you know, it's remarkable. I'm curious though, if you were to take us behind the scenes of doing that M&A to start to build up, and I also want to talk about the, you know, the Newmont deal and all of that, how do you approach that? What were those conversations like? And if you were to phrase your or respond with thinking about other CEOs and, and IR pros, keeping them in mind, how do you approach M&A in a way that is successful? So Ian Telfer, who is my chairman at Goldcorp, and today he's the chairman of my advisory committee at Gold Royalty as well. And I brought him on because he's got a wealth of experience. You think I have experience? He has experience. I mean, <laughs> I can't hold a candle to him, but he created Wheat and Precious Metals at a Gold Corp 15 years ago, spun it out. He pioneered the whole streaming model. He, he created it. And so we wanted to leverage his experience. And Ian has always said to me that deals are not done by companies. They're done by people. And so understanding who the players are in the space, understanding their motivations will help you understand what's transactable and what's not. And so, you know, if you look at our collective board of management, we have 40 years of experience in the industry. Ian's, you know, among them, uh, Warren Gilman are aboard, Amir's on the board, Glenn Mullen, who founded Golden Valley's on the board. These are people with a ton of experience, but experience is important because it also gives you access. There isn't anybody in the industry that one of us can't pick up the phone and at least chat to and get a conversation started. And that's really how it all all happens. It starts with a conversation. And then you try to find where your interests are aligned. And in the case of Gold Royalty, it was me picking up the phone and calling Trey Wasser, you know, a very close mentee of mine who's a banker, introduced me to. And Trey and I hit it off. And, you know, he challenged me. We talked, we started talking before the IPO. And he said, you know what? I know you see a lot of value in your assets. I want you to go out there and, and market proof, proof it for me. And, you know, show me that the market sees that value that you do. I said, fine. So we did that and, and we got a very good valuation on that initial royalty portfolio and we had currency. So I went to trade and I said, look, here's the currency. I told you we had it. 
you know, Trey had built up the company, but was a bit frustrated given the relatively small size in competing for new royalty opportunities. It became challenging for him. And he wanted to join into a bigger group. And Trey is to this day still on our advisory board, sits in my management meetings every Friday morning. And so I'm able to continue to leverage his expertise. And he's in a state of semi-retirement, which is what he wanted. He wanted to have the fun part of building a royalty company without having to deal with all the public company disclosure obligations and you know, tending to shareholders and whatnot. So he's getting gotcha. the best of all world. So understanding that he was motivated to do that was extremely important. And he'd served his shareholders extremely well. And then, you know, through our relationship with our, our outside counsel, I met Jimmy Lee, Jimmy Lee, who's the biggest shareholder of Golden Valley. He's uh, not in the mining business. He's a pulp and paper guy based out of Dubai. He's Canadian, but he lives in Dubai. And again, I had a conversation with him about creating that mid-tier, the dream of a mid-tier royalty company where none exists now. And again, by doing that, getting a re-rate, driving down our cost of capital, achieving scale quickly, he bought in that entirely. And as a result, we were able to take over Golden Valley and its associated company, Abitibi Royalties, and got a royalty on Canada's biggest producing gold mine, Canadian Malartic, as a result of that deal. And that brought us to over 200 royalties. So those two deals leapfrogged us from 18 to over 100 royalties and now over 200 royalties as a result of doing those deals. So again, it's just leveraging your connections, leveraging your networks within your collective board of management, having that initial conversation, understanding the motivations on the other side. And I have to tell you, I've had many other conversations that were not successful, you know, because, yeah. you know, interests weren't aligned. We launched a hostile deal earlier in the year or last year with elemental royalties. And I'll be the first to admit, we stumbled on that. We thought there was a motivated seller there in the shareholder base. We were wrong. And so sometimes you get it wrong, but it really starts with those conversations and trying to understand the motivations and, and then looking for opportunities to do deals in. I really appreciate the notes on having to understand the motivations and having to, you know, even unpack them because somebody might, what they say is not actually their true motivation all the time. And I'm curious to, do you see these, these discussions as a bit of a sales approach, like a bit of a sales game? Do you have to sell yourself to the deal or are you cautious when you go into to presenting an opportunity to be acquired or for the, you to acquire them that they're going to just go for top dollar without any question of other potential value adds kind of thing? Like is, yeah, how do you, how do you sell the deal? Yeah. Look, you have to sell the dream and sell the value of the trade in the rare situations where people just want to cash out. But in my experience, that has been the small minority of deals that I've done in my career. It's generally, they want to trade paper for paper, you know, maybe a small component of the cash and the consideration, but they want to trade into a bigger vehicle and go along for the ride. If they buy into the dream, the re-rate potential, they'll want paper in return and they'll want to be in the combined entity and enjoy the re-rate that collectively we'll be able to enjoy much more easily than we could in, on a separate basis, you know, in a smaller scale. So achieving that scale, that relevance, being big enough to matter, but still small enough to grow is really the dream that we're trying to sell by capturing that missing middle that we think exists in the royalty space. So there's the category killers and Franco, Wheaton, Royal Gold. Those are 20, $30 billion market cap companies. They're blue chip. They get a premium multiple and they deserve it because of the quality of their assets, their management teams. I get all that. But they have a challenge. How do you grow when you're that big? Right. Whereas if we could capture, you know, three to five billion dollar market cap, 
Well, that's big enough and liquid enough to matter to institutional investors, but still small enough to grow meaningfully through the acquisition of any individual royalty opportunities. You know, that's what those guys face in terms of their their difficulty, their challenge and where they go from here. It's hard to imagine Franco Nevada being a 10-bagger from here. It's not hard to imagine us being a 10-bagger from here. It really isn't, uh, nor gotcha. some of our beer companies. We have high-quality assets. We, we deserve a higher multiple and premium. We just need to achieve scale quickly enough to be relevant to institutional investors so they play and help to hasten that re-rate. I appreciate your note there on selling the trade, really selling the dream. You know, it's very rare that it's just going to be a cash, you know, a cash out. So you've got to show the the potential of, of here's what the future can bring. And this is why. And look, I can also, given my experience in my career, point to very tangible examples where that in fact happened. You know, when I started at Ignico Eagle in 1998, I was 33 years old, a new CFO. Sean had just been promoted at 38 to CEO. So very, very young management team. We had three executives at the office, six employees at head office, including the controller and a couple of executive assistants, and 200 employees at the Laurent mine. We were a one-mine operation, 90,000 ounces a year of production, and a $200 million market cap. Gold was 250 an ounce, if you can imagine. You know, it was hmm. a, an unloved sector. And, yeah. and at the time, the landscape looked broadly similar to what the royalty landscape looks like. There was a couple of category killers, Barrick and Newmont which is still the case today, ironically, they were five, six million ounces a year of production. And they were by far the biggest companies in the entire sector. And then there was everybody else. There was a lot of Ignico Eagles, you know, that small cap emerging producer. There was no million ounce a year producers at the time. There was really big and then really small. And I remember Sean and Eve and I, Eve Shirkus, COO, our dream was let's get to a million ounces. Let's create a million ounce producer. We really didn't have a concept of how we get there, but that was kind of the dream. And if we could get there, then we could capture a mid-tier middle that didn't exist currently. And maybe that'll get us the best multiple in the space because we'll still be big enough to matter, but small enough to grow, which was a challenge for Barrick and Newmont. They had no prospect for growth. And so they were kind of languishing in terms of their share price performance at the time, in spite of their scale, very profitable businesses, but not getting a lot of generalist interest. So, you know, fast forward 12 years later, when I left to go run Hud Bay, we had built six new mines, including an expansion at Laurent. And, you know, we acquired those mines early stage, built them ourselves, leveraging our, our core competency in mine construction. And we were a million ounce a year producer and we were 10 billion market cap at the time. And we had by far the best multiple in the sector on a pressing net asset value basis, far and above what Barrick and Newmont had. Because people looked at our million ounces a year, saw how quickly we got there and said, you know, a million ounces is big, but it's not so big that you can't grow by 10 or 15% a year. Where Barrick at five or six million ounces a year, they weren't growing 10 or 15% a year. That's impossible. Um, and they're still struggling with that, you know, as is Newmont. It's, it's, it's a big struggle to maintain that kind of production profile. There just hasn't been enough expiration activity. So that thesis played out really beautifully in the producer space. I see it playing out exactly the same way in the royalty space. I really do see that potential here. It's always neat to see playbooks repeated just in a different sector or in a, you know a different variation of, of an industry. And so I think that's really exciting for you. I've got a question about your early career and you moving into successive leadership roles. I mean, you came out as, as you know, came into the industry as a, an accountant and as a treasurer moved into the CFO role, and then took on CEO roles of some major mining operations. 
How did you grow your career that way? What were some of those pivotal steps, if you recall? Well, it started at InMet, and I had a really, really strong leader, Richard Ross, who at the time was a young controller, and he ultimately became the CEO of InMet after I left InMet, and he grew to the CFO role when I was treasurer. And Richard, you know, initially gave me accounting stuff to do. I was doing consolidations and preparing financial statements and kind of mastered that pretty quickly and automated it a lot. I systemized the whole organization before it was fairly manual exercises. You can imagine early 90s, not a lot of people had PCs on their desks. And so we had a few mines that we were looking to build. One was the Chiali mine in Turkey. We had the Bugreen zinc mine in Tunisia. We were also building a gold mine in, in the Shibugamu region of Quebec called Troilus. And so we had three mines under construction at once, and it was all hands on deck. I mean, construction is all consuming in an organization. And initially, Richard drafted me in to help prepare the financial sections of the feasibility studies for these projects so that we could eventually get them sanctioned by our board, which ultimately we did. And when we did, he said, okay, join the mine building team. Help them with the commercial elements of the project in terms of going out for requests for proposals on major items, then doing commercial evaluations on, on those proposals when they come in, and then selecting contractors, et cetera, et cetera, doing the project financings on those projects. We did three separate financings, two of them with the World Bank, Turkey and Tunisia, because commercial banks weren't risk on at the time in those countries, and then uh, doing a project financing with, I remember, UBS and Torellis. So learn how project financings work and whatnot. Then, you know, we built those mines, it was successful. And in 1998, you know, Sean had just been promoted to CEO of Ignico as he had been CFO before. Uh, Paul Penna, the founder, passed away. He was looking for a replacement. It's a small industry. And I, I'd run into Sean a couple of times. Once when we were trying to sell the Troilus gold mine to, to other gold producers, because it was non-quarter in Met. Met him in the data room as I was running the sales process we kind of hit it off and he kept my number and he called me and said, I just got promoted. Do you want a CFO gig? And one thing led to another and I became CFO and not really understanding <laughs> all it encompassed, but Sean was a great tutor and he'd been a CFO for a long time. And, and you, you were 33 at the time. I was 33. Yeah. And he was yeah. only 38. We were babies and it's funny, <laughs> but you know, and we had license to do what we did because you know, gold was 250. Nobody was paying attention to us. You know, we could make mistakes and, you know, out of the sight of most of the equity markets, the equity markets wasn't investing in the gold sector. And, you know, we were a relatively small player, so we could learn as we worked. And Eve Shirkus was the grand old guy in the executive suite. And I think he was only like 43, 44. Like he was, <laughs> he was the gray hair. Himself. So it's funny, you know, relatively young team, small team, one operation, but an incredible following at Ignico Eagle on the retail side in the U.S. Paul Penna was an absolute promoter's promoter in the U.S. that he had a great following in the U.S. retail market. So we had a kind of an army of shareholders that were extremely supportive. And Sean was great at continuing to cultivate and maintain that shareholder base. He still tells Paul Penna stories to anybody who'll you know, ask him. Like he still remembers all the old stories and, and is really the keeper of the flame. And that was critical. Yeah. Let's get into some of those because, you know, I like the question, do retail shareholders matter? And so I think you've got a story here that, that is, is a demonstration of, you know, leveraging those independent shareholders. And so, so what do you know there? What, what was he able to do and how have you leveraged that in your career going forward? Yeah. So Paul, you know, and I can only tell you this kind of secondhand because I wasn't there. Paul, Paul had died by the time I got there. I knew him by reputation, 
but Sean worked with him. You know, Sean has been at Ignico Eagle since 1985. So he was there with Paul for a long time. And he, he was the auditor on the account with Ernst and Young or Clarkson Gordon at the time before that. So he'd been with Ignico even prior to employment for a long, long time. So he's probably then been there since like 1980 doing work one way or another. Yeah. And he saw firsthand what Paul, Paul had an issuer's license in the US and he went down with a, a suitcase full of share certificates and visited these retail high net worth investors, business people and said, this is the story for you. And then literally took a check, give him a share certificate. And he built up yeah. his retail shareholder base one person at a time. And he just continually did that. And he had, fortunately, with Eve Shirkus there and Sean, a capable management team that were kind of running the back office, doing the things at the ground level. Eve was a prolific explorationist and mind builder. He discovered the Laurent mine itself as, as a project manager when he was a young guy in his 30s um, up in Valdor and you know, where he's from originally and built the business from the ground up. So Paul was smart enough to realize what he needed on the technical and financial side and surrounded himself with really, really Hall of Fame type people in Eve and Sean, and then did what he does well, which is promote, you know, promote, promote the story really, really well. You know, he wasn't a mining guy. He was a golf pro. That's how he started his life. You know, in his, in his 1950s, he was a golf pro, but morphed into a, a mining entrepreneur. And I can't tell you how that transition happened. <laughs> 1950s was before I was born, but incredible story. And he's a mining hall of fame guy as well. Uh, just tremendous backstory. I just, I love these stories so much, right? Like, so I grew up in Vancouver there in, in West Van and grew up in the restaurant business. And so I talked with tons of people in the markets, tons in mining and all this. And so some of the stories there, the guys who used to chalk up, you know, trades on the, the Vancouver Stock Exchange. And so it's always been really interesting to me. And it, what you're telling me now reminds me of when I interviewed Rick Rule. And I said, so how did you get started? And him owning a bar and talking to Peter Brown and, you know, being a bartender and looking and going, what the hell am I doing here? You know, just like... There's just some great origin stories about how you guys all got in the business. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting. Like I see a lot of parallels in Amir Nanny to what I, you know, what I saw in Paul Pena and early in his career. Amir is not a mining person per se, but he's a tremendous entrepreneur and has built this incredible uranium business from the ground up. I joke with him, you know, now that Uranium Energy Corp is so successful, I've joked with him like he's an overnight success 20 years in the making. He's a patient value investor and he's just been plugging away, telling the story. And now he's really doing very well with his uranium business. But for a long time, he was in the wilderness, you know, the, you know, true believer that was in a market, you know, among atheists, you know, <laughs> so, uranium atheists, if you will. So, but now everybody's coming to his way of thinking and he's doing extremely well. And he has that kind of vision with what we've built on the development side and gold mining, Nick, where I'm co-chair with him. And, and I feel very, very fortunate and privileged to, to share that co-chairmanship with him and also share the co-founding of Gold Royalty. Again, tremendous privilege for me because I recognize entrepreneurial genius when I see it. I've seen it before up close in Paul Pena, and I see it here in, in, in Amir. I'm very, very fortunate to be partners with him. Those are huge compliments for Amir. And, and so, I mean, that's especially coming from the pedigree you have. And I do want you to take us back to, uh, though, to, through your career. And you mentioned that, like, you know, at, at 250 an ounce or whatever it was, there was just, you know, you could make all sorts of mistakes and nobody was there to care. But 
sometimes it's the mistakes in your career which are the most impactful and lead to the greatest learning. I have to tell you, and I'm not doing this to brag, but I won Canada's CFO of the year in 2009 and by Financial Executives International. And it's on my CV. So obviously, I leverage it. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. But I won that because I did the most expensive, egregious financing I've ever done in my career in 2008 in the midst of the credit crisis to basically save ourselves. And I think that's deeply ironic that I won an award for that because I should never have been in the position where I had to do that financing at that. Oh, point. wow. Yeah. Yeah. It is horribly embarrassing to this day. And then they gave me a prize for it. Ridiculous. And so 2008, if you remember, started off with a bank, like the market was humming. Metal prices were extremely high. Chinese super cycle was in full throttle. You know, zinc prices were two bucks a pound. We had a lot of zinc production coming out of La Ronde at the time. The upper zones of 20 North were upper horizons of 20 North were zinc rich while we're getting to the copper gold stuff at depth. So we were absolutely minting it. And we had five other new mines under construction at the time. Kitala in Finland, uh, Metal Bank in Nunavut, Pinos Altos in Mexico, Goldax, Lapa in Quebec. So we were spending a lot of capital, but you know, I was riding high as CFO. I said, look, lots of cash flow coming here, left, right, and center. We're, we're great. Well, then the credit crisis happened and metal prices plummeted. Our cash flow disappeared. And we had, I would guesstimate, probably a $200 million hole in our balance sheet. And I was really worried about having enough capital to complete the construction. We, we were more than half pregnant here. We, the baby was coming. We had to deliver and I was casting about in late 20, 2008, trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to raise money? And a guy at Macquarie, a good friend of mine called Ken Gillis, an investment banker, called me up and said, look, I have a, a contact Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, and they think you need money. And I think you need money. And they're good, they'll underwrite a financing for you. And it was a share and warrant financing. And if I look at the cost of capital, I'm too embarrassed to say what it is. It was super high. <laughs> yeah. Sean said, we need money. I said, I know we need money. This is what we have. CPP will underwrite a deal. We can offer it to our other shareholders. If they don't want to take it, they'll take the whole deal. Um, Some of our shareholders did take it, but it was an egregiously expensive financing. But what it did, it removed the overhang in our stock because the market felt we had a balance sheet issue and it undermined confidence. Once we did that deal, as expensive as it was, our stock went to the moon. And that came out of the credit crisis. Gold was starting to bounce. And, you know, now that we were fully financed through the end of construction, people bought back into the growth story. And then I won the award. And honestly, I sheepishly accepted it, but I did accept it. And, but I, I knew exactly why I got it. And, and it's, you know, it was a bit undeserved to be honest with you, but nobody else was raising capital in late 2008. I think they cast about, looked at various industries, said, anybody do any money raising the second half of 2008? Well, Garofalo did. Nobody looked, you know, underneath the hood to see how expensive it was. They just said, he was the only guy to raise any money, so we'll we'll give him the award. So that was wow. It. I appreciate you going back there and actually, you know, talking about that because, like, yeah, you can, you know, the self awareness there. Mistakes were made, and and it was costly, but then you know, in time and and with some luck, that really turned around. But wow, that's funny. I, I love how you approached it. <laughs> I want you to take us into the Newmont uh, Gold Corp deal, and. That was a major deal. That was a big deal. And so we, we kind of touched on selling an acquisition or a merger. But for this deal in itself, how did that come about? And can you, to the extent that you can, can you take us behind the scenes? 
Yeah, look, I, I think that's still enough information where I can be a bit more frank about how it came about. Almost from the day I started at, at Gold Corp and I started January 1st, 2016, a new CEO came in, Chuck Janessa just retired. I looked at the landscape and said, this industry's got a problem. Nobody's been drilling. Reserves were declining. Our reserves were declining. Our production was declining. Barrick's production was declining. Newmont's production was declining. Everybody had a reserve problem, a production problem. And I said, well, if nobody's discovering and drilling, then they must have to buy. And so I saw almost out of an existential necessity, these companies coming together at some in some form. And I already started talking to my peers at the time. And the one that I had the strongest connection was, was Gary Goldberg at Newmont. And Gary and I had conversations about, okay, how do we cooperate with each other to create a bigger vehicle and maybe narrow the competition among the senior producers? And, and honestly, between you and me, or, or between everybody's listening to this, I said to him and, and Gary agreed, you know, shouldn't we be looking at Barrick? Barrick had just come out of a big hedging crisis. They just bought this big Equinox company with all, all with cash. Like it was an $8 billion acquisition or something like that. Did it with debt. So they had a lot of debt. They had to collapse their hedge book, which was hugely expensive in the height of the gold market. And so they had a significant balance sheet issue, and, but they had great assets. And I said to Gary, we're already joint venture partners with Barrick on Pueblo Viejo and Dominican Republic. I'd love to have the rest of that asset. You would probably love to have the rest of Nevada. Shouldn't we cooperate in some way and, and kind of like Gold Corp and Barrick cooperated to take over Plaster Dome? You know, Gold Corp paid cash for the Canadian assets and Barrick took over the rest of Plaster Dome. I said, shouldn't we do a Plaster Dome type of deal with Barrick? And Gary seemed to be amenable to that. We spent some time looking at that, doing a lot of desktop work, you know, kicked that ball around for a couple of years. And then it became apparent to us, Barrick was starting to bounce back quite nicely and their operational performance improved and they started to deleverage and sell non-core assets and do all those sorts of things. They did some tremendous work to turn it around under on John Thornton's leadership. And it was starting to run away from us a little bit. And then we started hearing rumors about Barrick and Rangold getting together in 2018. And I said to Gary, look, we better, you know, shit or get off the pot, excuse my French, but, you know, we better do this or Barrick's going to run away from us here. And for whatever reason, couldn't get Newmont to the table on that. And so Barrick and Rangold got announced in August of 2018 and their stock took off. The market loved it. It was an at the market, zero premium merger and the market embraced it. Loved the diversification, the scaling, loved Mark Bristow, who to this day still runs Barrick, obviously a very accomplished entrepreneur and operator in his own right. And, you know, the, the, the company hasn't looked back. And I said to Gary, you know, this is an existential issue for you now because Barrick is going to come after you next. There's going to be synergies in Nevada that are very – synergies are extremely rare in our business. And Nevada was one of the few examples, you know, kind of exceptions that prove the rule. But that was – there was like hundreds of millions of dollars of synergies could be realized by rationalizing infrastructure and deposits right beside each other. And the market saw it. Barrick saw it. And I thought for sure Newmont was vulnerable. To be honest, Newmont kind of hesitated. And so we started looking around and we started talking to another large cap player in the space that I, I will not name, but we spent a few months doing extensive due diligence on each other. 
And Newmont heard we were doing that. The rumors were out there and you could probably guess who that other party was because everybody heard those discussions were going on. But we thought it was an existential imperative for us to merge with somebody and create some scale quickly. Otherwise, we would be vulnerable. Newmont was nipping at my heels. And when we got out of exclusivity with the other party, Newmont came in with a premium offer. They were quite a bit bigger than us. And it was a premium share for share exchange. And I thought on the balance of things, our shareholders would be far better off taking Newmont's paper and absorbing our portfolio within Newmont and getting a re-rate. And if you look at how our shareholders enjoyed the ride afterwards, if you look at Newmont's peak share price since that merger, it was over 80 bucks US. If our shareholders had held on to that stock right to the peak and enjoyed the dividends in the meantime, they would have gotten a, a total return of about 300% on that investment from wow. announcement January 2019. So it's clearly the right thing for our shareholders to do and right thing for us. Got me out of a job, but that's life. That's just the way it is. You run a public company, you got to do what's in the fiduciary best interest of your shareholders. And that's what we did. And I think our shareholders enjoyed an immense return as a result of that. But yeah, there's a lot of discussions that go on in the background, a lot of trial and error about who's going to marry who and who's going to do what with whom. And I, I still think the best deal would have been if you know we could have persuaded Newmont to take Barrick out when they were mo- their most vulnerable, when their balance sheet was weak, but their assets mm. were strong. I mean, I, I think Barrick was almost bankrupt proof and is almost bankrupt proof because of the quality of their asset base. I mean, Gold Strike is probably the best gold asset ever found and it's still giving. Wow. And that asset base we coveted and we thought, look, the, the balance sheet issues are transitory. Those assets are there for generations to come. But we just couldn't get them, get Newmont there. And, and I think, you know, I also think as a U.S. company, they're somewhat reluctant to maybe look at being a little bit aggressive. It could have been an aggressive type of deal, like Placer Dome was a hostile takeover. That could have been, I, I don't know if it would have played out hostile if we had approached Barrick on a combined basis. Maybe it could have been a very friendly deal, but we just never got to that point. It would have been a very, very striking deal if we'd gotten it done. M&A can be really exciting. And I think back to my early career, really how I got into the world of finance was doing mergers and acquisitions with a large agricultural firm. And, you know, the discussions, the war room, the numbers that we, you know, you'd sit down and you'd play out different scenarios. And then we'd all have to come together and sit down and, you know, help brief the the, the C-suites, you know, different ways like that. When you were going through these discussions and, and you know, one-on-ones with Newmont, I mean, your head was on the line. You you needed to navigate this. How do you approach it? Did you know? Do you have just a deep resolve that you see this and you're you're going to sell it? And then you you like, what's the kind of where am I trying to get here? Like the the personality trait, the 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 perseverance. What really pushed you forward to to see this and communicate this to get these deals done? Well, look, I'll be blunt. I would have preferred to stay on and do the deal that I wanted to do from the outset, which was the Barrick deal. That would have been my preference and, and Gold Corp would have been a very interesting vehicle with a consolidated asset in Dominican Republic and Pueblo Viejo, which is one of the best producing gold mines in the world. We would have got some other projects that we would have inherited from Barrick as well. And Newmont would have affected the consolidation. They ultimately achieved when we announced our deal. Barrick came after Newmont, a disruptor deal. And that that was yeah. a catalyst for them to talk about joint venture in Nevada. So they realized those synergies. So Mission accomplished from that standpoint. Newmont got the synergies they wanted in Nevada, but they don't own the assets 100%. I think the deal we would have had the table would have them only 100% in Nevada, not 38% that they own currently. Yeah. But that being said, recognizing the reality of the situation, and there are only so many pieces on the chessboard, 
the best deal for us was the Newmont merger at the end of the day. And we looked at mergers of equals with another party that would have maybe allowed me to maintain my position or a different position within the company and maybe at the chairman's level, whatever. But at the end of the day, looking at the balance of, of opportunities in front of us and for our shareholders, what Newmont offered was the most compelling of the options we had in front of us. And we recognize the existential necessity of doing it because the sector is was shrinking. And you know what? To this day, it's still shrinking. It's still shrinking. Barrick and Newmont are dealing with declining production reserves again, you know, several yeah. years, four years after having completed those deals, they're back into that unfortunate treadmill where they haven't been exploring and they haven't been buying anything. So they're having to deal with declining production reserves and perennial disappointments in the marketplace. And that's a recurring theme within the producer space right now. So I'm curious, how does that play out? You know, you see, you hear this narrative a lot within the copper space and, you know, we don't have the production and, you know, gold space, any of our metals, we don't have enough production. There hasn't been enough exploration. We've got a bit of a, is it a stalemate? Is it, it's an issue that, that is going to have to come home to roost. How do you see this playing out? It'll be crisis management. You know, people ask me, has the gold industry learned anything? Well, we've had a really good half a dozen years or so where we've harvested great cash flows from our business been disciplined about returning capital to shareholders, paying down debt. You know, the sector is at net zero debt effectively now, which is unprecedented. That's amazing. So they've done a great job repairing the balance sheets. They've put nothing in the ground. Reserves are down to six years of production right now from a Mm. high of about a dozen years, 10 years ago. We came out of the credit crisis. We're spending a lot of money in exploration. Juniors could raise money back then when gold, you know, went up 80, 100%. But now they haven't been able to raise money. So there's been scant exploration on the grassroots side. And there's very marginal incremental exploration occurring on the producer side around existing mines and infrastructure. So the industry's done a horrible job of replacing reserves. And it's getting to a crisis mode right now. So at a necessity, I think there's going to be a big rotation of capital into exploration and development stage assets. And we're seeing some tentative steps in that regard. You know, Ken Ross bought Great Bear you know, for $2 billion recently. And that was one of the biggest development stage opportunities. That's not even development stage, it's pre-resource stage, but soon we'll have a resource. But again, a big bet on a development stage asset where the seniors haven't really made big bets on development stage assets. They're going to have to. And I think both the industry and the capital markets are going to have to pay closer attention to the juniors and the early stage developers and putting money to work with them because the industry needs them. They need the juniors to be successful. And juniors have had very, very selective access to capital markets over the last 10 years or so. Yeah, They haven't been investing in exploration because they haven't been able to consistently access capital. And that's to the detriment of the industry as a result. And that's why reserves have been on this steady downward trajectory and unlikely to reverse itself anytime soon, given the lead time from discovery to first production is typically 20 years, right? So this this is not a trajectory that's going to reverse itself anytime soon. But there'll be overcompensation and there's going to be vast amounts of money thrown at expiration just out of that existential necessity. Yeah. I'm curious. I want to bring it back to royalties and companies, management teams looking to come to you to strike a deal for a royalty. Yep. What's the best way that they do this? How do you come and say, okay, listen, here's our project. Here's where we're at. This is what we're after. You know, what does that look like for them? Yeah, it really depends on what stage they're at, you know, because we generate royalties through several means. You know, one is what you're describing as a project financing type of scenario where 
You got a developer or explorer saying, look, I, I've got a project I want to build out, de-risk. Will you put some money into us and take a royalty back? So that's project financing. The other way we do it is sometimes we stake exploration claims around existing producers, explorers. And we have a guy in Nevada that does that, Jerry Bachman, who was one of the founders of Neely. And in Quebec, we have Glenn Mullen, who's the founder of Abitibi and Golden Valley. They're both prospectors, 30 plus years of doing this. And they're opportunistic. They stake expiration claims and then they wait for the neighbor to knock because you know what? Geological deposits don't understand man-made boundaries. And so if you're drilling on a neighboring property and you're trending towards ours, you'll come and talk to us. And what we'll say is, great, you want the property? Here, take it. We'll farm it out to you, but give us an option payment back, give us a work commitment, and give us a royalty back. And we've generated about 40 royalties doing that out of the 215 we have in the portfolio. So that's another way that we generate royalties. Gotcha. And yeah. sometimes it's third-party royalties. You know, last year we bought a royalty on Cote, which is going to be I Am Gold's newest mine in Ontario. And we bought that through the estate of a deceased prospector, one of the original stakers on that property way, way back. And his widow was looking to monetize that. And we had a relationship with her lawyer through a friend of a friend. And we ended up buying that royalty for $16 million out of wow. the estate. And now we have a royalty in the highest grade portion of Cote. So there's various means. And quite often, the developers and explorers will run a process. If it's a coveted project, then they'll hire a banker and they'll reach out to all the royalty players and we'll compete in those processes. Recently, we bought a portfolio of royalties from Nevada Gold Mines, Barrick and Newmont, on some non-core assets that they had sold and taken royalties back, including an NPI on net profits interest on Granite Creek. And we won and we used our shares to buy it. We gave share consideration to Barrick and Newmont. Now they're our second biggest shareholder. Nevada Gold Mines is at about 7%, which is ironic given what I just talked to you about, about yeah. M&A and, you know, among the big boys back in 2016, you know, seven, eight years ago. But Kevin Thompson, who's the head of strategy at, at Barrick, is a friend of mine. And I persuaded him that there's a tremendous rewrite opportunity in Golden Gold Royalty stock and this is only a $27 million transaction. It's a rounding error for Barrick. Why stop at 27? Why not take 27 in stock and enjoy the upside and the re-rate that hopefully your asset will enjoy within our broader portfolio? And he bought into that. And you know, it was leveraging a personal relationship there to persuade him to take our paper versus cashing out with somebody else. So those are some of the insights and ways that we come upon royalty opportunities. Yeah. And what I take from that, it's it's not just a single, you know, you're not just for simplicity, offering a form of debt and then give us our coupon, give us our interest, right? It sounds like there's tons of different ways you can identify the opportunity and convert that into a form of a royalty. It's not just, you know, a one shot. Yeah. And look, when we're valuing these things, if there's a reserve, a resource, we'll try to do net present value cash flow analysis. But sometimes yeah. these are so early stage, you just have to believe in the people and the resource potential there, and you're buying the expiration upside, and you're, you're assigning nominal value in those cases. That's fine, but at least you have infinite optionality at that point. You know, There's a lot of those royalties in our portfolio will surprise us. They'll never surprise us negatively because there's no cash calls. We own those royalties outright. They're bought and paid for. We never have to put another right. dime into them. All we have to do is wait. And I'm sure Franco Nevada and David Harker will be the first to tell you there's many of royalties that are paying gobs of cash out of Franco today that 10 years ago, they didn't even realize had potential. You know, they just said, oh, they're not going to waste. They're not going to decay. We'll put them on the shelf and wait. 
Franco doesn't sell any of their royalties because they don't they don't eat. You know, they don't consume anything. They just sit there and they offer the optionality. And that's been the case with a couple of royalties that surprised us on the upside positively. We didn't realize they had value when we acquired them through the acquisition of Ely or Golden Valley and Abitibi. And suddenly, you know, like the Borton royalty in, in Ontario, ironically, which is a mine I built when I was running Gold Corp. We ended up with a royalty on I didn't even know Ely had. Huh. And it started cash flowing last year. And through a, a series of circumstances, we ended up with that royalty, but we attributed no value to it when we acquired Ely. But now it's a cash flowing, very valuable royalty. And so having that kind of optionality in your portfolio is incredible. And you never have to give it up because it doesn't consume anything. Right, right. It's a fascinating business model. And I love, and you know, you're starting to see this you know, in the carbon space where they're, you know, doing royalty models now in the carbon space and different, you know, different industries. But it's very clear to me your your financial approach in operating this, you know, this portfolio of of royalties. Do you have like a preferred portfolio structure in which you look at and you say, okay, let's give 30% to this and, and only 5% to the higher risk? How do you structure the management of the capital you have to deploy? Yeah, look, I think we place a premium valuation on things that are cash flowing currently because they've been broadly de-risked, built out. You know, the operator, if they have, if they're well capitalized and have a great balance sheet, then that gives us added comfort and you can reduce the risk premium on your rates of return. So you're willing to accept lower internal rates of return on lower risk opportunities. And that's the way we look at it. We build risk premium on top of our risk-free rate for things that have risk, whether it's geographical, geological, operating capital intensity and capital investment risk, then we start to kind of build up higher hurdle rates in response to that. And that's the way we look at allocating capital. You know, and some things are just off limits, you know, wrong jurisdiction, wrong operator. There are many opportunities that we've looked at. We've probably looked at over 200 opportunities in the last two years of our existence and executed on eight, right? And and the vast majority of them you're excluding and accepting because of some perceived technical risk. Or in some cases, there was a couple of mature operations where the operators were not the most reputable, you know, didn't have good environmental records, certainly didn't have good safety records. And we said, yeah, you know, we'll pass. We just don't want to have the kind of reputational damage that comes from that, even as kind of a passenger and as a royalty holder, you just don't want to be associated with that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Can you believe we're we're hitting an hour already? (laughs) David, I've really, I've enjoyed, you know, taking us back into your early years. And also what I've observed here is, is such a, a financial mindset and how you approach this and your background from being a chartered accountant or from being in the CFO role. And it reminds me of Sean Usmar, who we interviewed as well from Triple Flag. Same thing, former CFO of Barrick. And so the mindset for the royalty space is, is, and the leadership there is, is truly there. And it's really fascinating to see. I think a final question for you is just even on a personal level, how do you find and entertain yourself with education, books, things like that? What are you into? Well, you know what? I'm so active on the conference circuit, you know, whether it's BMO conference, TD conference, Scotia conference, PDAC, et cetera. I quite often, you know, leverage those opportunities to go into academic mode, listen in, guest speakers and whatnot to know what's going on in the sector, getting some perspectives on the macroeconomic environment we find ourselves in. And those are really rich environments to mine that type of knowledge, you know, because quite often we'll bring in guest speakers that are outside the mining sector that provide us valuable perspective in terms of how 
the metals industry fits into the broader economy. So I, okay. I do that all the time. I have a son who's a management consultant at Deloitte's. He's constantly throwing business books my way. <laughs> He's a prolific reader in that regard. And, and we swap books all the time. I enjoy doing that with him. I have a daughter who's in private equity at CPPIB as well. And uh, we're always swapping perspectives and you know business ideas. And she's doing more financial services. So valuable perspectives and having those conversations with the next generation of business minds and happen to have a couple of them in my family. So. No, that's awesome. It's, you know, I think one of the things that I feel just so fortunate is the opportunity to have conversations like this. You know, it, it really, it's, it's an eye opener. So I really appreciate your time, David. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.